Alrighty, uh, we will go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, again, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, and I'm joined this morning by Coulter Batterton. Uh, yes, very exciting. Many of you know Coulter. Uh, Coulter recently moved with a group of other leaders from River's Edge uh, 3,000 miles away uh, to Portland, Maine to plant a new church there, and he's home for the holidays, and so we wanted to take this last Sunday of 2020 to uh, conclude our witness series by talking about something that is very near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, and that is the cost and power of revival. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with us in your Bibles to Nehemiah 8, uh, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Um, and uh, there are actually Bibles over here that we set out most Sundays. If you don't have a Bible or you have a friend who doesn't have a Bible, feel free to grab those and uh, keep them. Uh, but as we uh, look at the story of human history, uh, what we see is a God who moves uh, powerfully in unique times and places in history. Uh, often it's in response to human prayer and human need. Uh, and sometimes, as we open up the library of Scripture, we see God act in very significant ways uh, for an individual, in the life of an individual, in an individual moment. Uh, but there are other times when God moves significantly in an entire people group or culture. Uh, and when God calls an entire people group to himself in a significant way, it often results in what we would call uh, revival or renewal within that culture. Uh, our own post-Christian secular culture uh, tells us that religion and faith are things of the past, uh, and that the future that we are to look forward to is more or less a secular wasteland. Uh, which is governed purely by science and logic and skepticism, uh, a landscape in which faith and religion have more or less been put to death. Uh, and they would claim that that's a one-way street. Uh, their story goes that Christianity sort of peaked in the dark ages when people didn't know any better and has been in decline ever since. But uh, history tells a very different story. Uh, history, including the history that is captured in the Old Testament, is boom and bust cycles. Uh, faith swells within a community or culture, it peaks, and then over the decades that follow, it begins to wane. Uh, and oftentimes, faith within a culture begins to wane slowly over time until God is more or less forgotten. Uh, there's no sort of public awareness of God. There's no uh, cultural or group awareness of his presence. And yet, it's often in these points of crisis when God has been almost forgotten by culture uh, that God moves in power. Uh, often in response to a small remnant uh, crying out to him to restore what has been lost. Uh, and he does. We see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Nehemiah 8 is one of many examples that we have in Scripture. Uh, but the, in this example, the Israelites are back from exile, uh, but their land, the city wall, the temple are all kind of in ruins. 
Enthusiasm across the culture is low. Uh, faith is low. Uh, but God stirs among his people and begins working in their hearts. Uh, in uh, verses 1 through 3, if you're looking at Nehemiah 8, uh, the people assemble and come to Ezra, who's one of the prophets at the time, and the people are coming together and they're asking for the word of God. There's, there's a hunger that God has already stirred uh, among the people. The community is drawn in, they're hungry, and as they gather to God and ask for uh, the scriptures to be read, uh, they, the presence of God comes. And this is picking up in verse 5. So Nehemiah 8 verse 5 says this. It says, Ezra opened the book, which was their Bible. Uh, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up as sort of the spontaneous response. Uh, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And what we see happening in this moment, if you read uh, Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, is that essentially uh, revival comes to the community of Israel. Uh, suddenly there's this, there's this new hunger that wasn't there before. People are spontaneously coming in from the culture and saying, we, we want this. We want to hear the word of God. We want to seek the presence of the Lord together. Uh, and as the spirit comes together, or as the community rather, comes together in hunger, seeking after God, uh, his spirit falls on this place. And there's this incredible response from the entire community. People are falling on their faces, uh, worshiping the Lord. And what follows is more or less revival. So if you have time, you can read Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, but within those chapters, the entire nation is sort of reawakened to who God is. They rediscover uh, God's character and God's word, and they encounter God's presence in, in a new way, in a fresh way. And so as you read through those chapters, what you see is that the whole nation is moved to worship God and to seek God. Uh, there's a confession of sin and repentance across the board, uh, which is often what you see in revival as we have this fresh sense of God's presence. It just stirs us toward repentance and, and the beauty that's on the other side of repentance. So there's confession of sin, there's repentance, uh, they're experiencing God's presence, and within that there's this fresh commitment to God, this fresh enthusiasm, excitement about God and who He is. They recommit their lives to Him and rediscover who He is in the process. And when this happens on a massive scale, across a city, across a state, across a nation, or beyond, uh, it's what we call uh, revival. It's God's presence falling on an entire community with stunning results in terms of human response. And this has happened uh, time and time again throughout history. Uh, the Second Great Awakening in 1858 uh, was referred to as, quote, a time when a divine influence seemed to pervade the land, and men's hearts were strangely warmed by a power that was outpoured in unusual ways. Uh, and, and this, in some sense, marks every revival. Uh, Duncan Campbell of the revival in the Hebrides uh, says it this way. He says, It was marked by the gracious touch of God's mighty power, falling from on high. 
moving people as no other power can to seek God. In speaking of the revival in the Hebrides, Duncan writes, he said, I would like to make clear what we witnessed. And here's the quote. By revival, I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing or a great speaker or any of that. I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. I do not mean high-pressure methods to get men to an inquiry room. In revival, every service is an inquiry room. The road and hillside become sacred spots to many when the winds of God blow. Revival is a going of God among His people, an awareness of God laying hold of the community. Here is the difference between a successful campaign and revival. In the former, we may see many brought to a saving knowledge of the truth, and the church or mission experience a time of quickening. But so far as the town or district is concerned, no real change is visible. The world goes on its way, and the dance and picture shows are still crowded. But in revival, the fear of God lays hold upon the community, moving men and women who until then had no concern for spiritual things to seek after Him. And, and when this comes, as it's come so many times in an almost secular pattern throughout history, it changes everything. It, it changes entire communities. It changes the culture of a city. It changes the atmosphere of a nation. And this is what they experienced in the Hebrides revival off the coast of Scotland. And it's been experienced time and time again around the world. Thanks, Matt, for sharing some brief ideas um, and stories around what revival is and what it's looked like historically. It's great to be with you all today. Um, whether you're joining us in person, obviously you guys are here or tuning in online. Um, thanks for coming. So. 2020, as you all know, has been an immensely difficult year for most, if not all of us. But, however, times of difficulty can give us um, an opportunity to strip things away and get the distractions out of the way so we can get centered on what God is speaking to us. As Matt mentioned earlier, myself and a team of five people moved over to Maine um, in order to follow the call of God to plant a church. If any of you aren't familiar with the story, um, I would encourage you to go online to riversedge.com, and you guys can look at the sermon that we preached, I think it was a year ago today, or at least it was the last Sunday in 2019 that we gave it. So anyway, diving back into revival, I'd like to share with you guys a couple of stories about the Great Awakening, which was the one before the Second Great Awakening. There were two awakenings in the U.S., um, and it happened in the area which I call home. One story that's super common to all of you is the story of the pilgrims coming across. They were coming to seek um, religious freedom from institutions and from, from government authorities. Um, and on November 11, 1620, this dream became a reality when the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock. And while it's true that for a time there was initial passion and fervor for the Lord um, right after people landed, um, what happened was churches began, began to stagnate in the later half of the 1600s. Fast forward to 1730, and the colonies are stuck in an immense state of apathy and spiritual decay. 
You see, it is in times when things seem almost desolate and barren that God seems to move the most powerfully. And when he does move, it's bec- and when he does move, because we serve a God who has a passion to be in relationship with us, he uses men and women like you and me to usher in the kingdom of God. In this particular story, the story of the Great Awakening, God used a man named Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know him for his famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God speech, but that was a one-off. He was a lovely man, super shy. He actually was a really nervous guy. He used to cover his face when he preached. Um, He wasn't this big tent revivalist who screamed at people, um, but that's all people know him for is one sermon. Um, Anyway, but he was super diligent. He was a guy from Connecticut, um, and God used him to fan the flames of revival. It's been estimated that of the 250,000 people who were living in New England at the time, 70,000 people were added back into churches. That's similar to about 2.2 million people being added um, in the state of Washington into our churches today. It's about a third of the population in two years. God's presence was so overpowering and tangible that whole church communities would feel the need to repent and turn to God. It was a powerful move of God in the Northeast that is still talked about today. Another major character from the Great Awakening, who many of you know, is George Whitfield. He sailed over from England shortly after the, everything began, and there's stories of when he would go into a new, a new town, the ground would shake because so many people would be running to hear him speak. Thousands were saved, and the rest were so expectant to see God move that they would drop everything, anything they were doing, it didn't matter what day it was, they would drop everything and sprint as fast as they could to go listen to someone talk about God. Now fast forward again with me one more time to the Northeast today in 2020, which is where I live. If you guys don't know, I think everyone knows where Maine is, but it's in the top right-hand corner of the country. And the story has hit another critical breaking point. Maine today is not a place of spiritual apathy and stagnation like it was in the 1700s. People still had um, a floorboard of Christianity to stand upon. What it is now uh, is a post-Christian and hedonistic paradise where the rich go to forget about the troubles of life. Uh, Maine's motto is vacation land. This area, which used to be known around the world as a spiritual bedrock for Christianity, producing some of the best preachers and theologians in the world, is now in a state of decay. In fact, I would compare it closely to the state of the city of Jerusalem that we just talked about in Nehemiah. You can see the ruins of a time when God was at the center of this whole region, and the presence of God was changing lives every day. And yet the temple is empty and the walls are broken. Walking around in Portland, Maine, you would see some of the most beautiful churches. And they're just these beautiful churches from 1710. They're gorgeous. But now these buildings aren't churches anymore. They're art galleries and restaurants. There are no longer watchmen on the walls or priests in the temple. To give you a better understanding of what church is like in Maine, let's look at Spokane. We're going to do a little side-by-side case study. I grew up in Spokane. I lived here for about 15 years. Um, And in Spokane, by and large, if you were to tell someone that you're planting a church, say, in the Shadle area, um, most people would have an understanding of what you were talking about. They might even ask you what denomination your church is or, or what makes your church different from the Life Center or even from River's Edge. In most of my experiences in Spokane, people tend to have an understanding of what church looks like, even if they don't attend on a regular basis. This is vastly different to Portland. If I were to tell someone that I'm here to plant a church, the question I get is, what religion are you a part of? The first time someone asked me that in a coffee shop, I was taken aback. And I asked myself, do other religions have churches? 
I suppose Muslims have mosques and Buddhists have temples, but surely people know what a church is. Sadly, the longer I've lived there, which is the past four months, the more I've come to realize the depressing reality of church life in Maine. One pastor we met with said that it was easier to plant churches in Ukraine than it has been in Maine, and currently Maine is the only state in America where Catholics send missionaries to. So now that we have an understanding of church in Maine, what do we do next? Sometimes I ask myself whether or not our small team of seven people can make an impact on an area that has been without the presence of God for decades. But even when I'm in a state of frustration and anxiety, God uses conversations with Matt or stories from the books that we're reading to remind me that hope is not lost. You see, as I mentioned earlier in the beginning, um, it's in times when hope seems almost faded that we have to get on our knees and pray for God to move in a way that we've never experienced. In other words, just as Matt read from that quote, new programs and increased church budgets aren't enough. When we pray for revival, we pray for God to change the atmosphere of a place and call thousands more to himself to get on their knees in worship and repentance. Charles Spurgeon says this, O men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for a revival of men whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in times of former generations. But as amazing as revival sounds and as we've talked about, it requires each of us to count a cost and decide whether or not we are individually ready for God to come and change not only the area we live in, but also to convict us of the sin that we have in our own lives. Like I said before, we're not simply asking for a better year of giving or a few more church members, though that would be fantastic. Um, when we ask for revival, we're asking for God to come and flood an entire region with his presence. One of my favorite passages of scripture comes from 2 Chronicles 7, which says, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. One of my favorite lines there is that when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down, the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on their pavement with their faces to the ground. It doesn't say some of them knelt with their faces to the ground. All of the Israelites knelt with their faces to the ground. Praying for revival means praying for God's presence to come in such great measure that all of the people in Spokane or in Portland kneel with their faces to the ground and worship God. Amen. Well, uh, we've had uh, a moment to uh, kind of talk about uh, very briefly, what is revival? And uh, we're defining revival as this uh, moment when uh, God's presence sort of comes or falls on an entire region, on an entire community. When there, once again, is, is kind of cultural or group awareness uh, of God's presence, an invasion of his presence into a world that otherwise isn't aware of him, that, that draws people into the kingdom on a massive scale. Uh, and as we look back through history, we see this happening over and over again. And it's often in, in crisis moments uh, for the church, when numbers have dwindled to uh, like zero to nothing, 
And yet there's this little remnant left that says, no, God, you can, you can do better than this. Uh, you can bring this entire city back to you if you want to. Uh, and, and this remnant then uh, gets before God uh, and, and revival comes. And we recognize as we survey the landscape that we need revival. We need renewal in places like Portland, Maine, in places like Spokane, Washington, or just about anywhere across the Western world. Uh, we need this. Uh, but as Coulter mentioned, it comes with a cost. Uh, and we have to count that cost as we begin to dream about something that is as grand as revival. Uh, I think from the outset, there's the obvious cost of just time and energy and prayer to say, no, I'm really going to get before the Lord on a consistent basis and seek his heart uh, for my city. I think there's an emotional cost that comes with getting before the Lord and saying, God, I want your heart for the lost. I want your heart for the broken. And, and if we actually present our hearts before the Lord in that way and say, there's hundreds of thousands of people all around us right now in this, in this place who aren't following Jesus, who don't know him. If we allow our hearts to actually be broken by that, we're taking on more of God's heart, but there's this emotional weight to it. We actually become burdened to the point where, where we have to pray. We're compelled to pray. We're compelled to get before the Lord and, and pray for big and amazing things in our city. But I think the greatest risk of all, at least for me and I think for many of us, is the risk of disappointment. Some of you will hear us talk about revival this morning and you'll uh, walk away saying, I don't really know what those guys were talking about. <laughs> like, I, I don't get it. I don't get what revival is. I don't know why I would want that. I, don't, I just don't get it. And that's fine. Most of us are going to hear about revival or revivals of the past and say, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, could, we, could we dare to dream about something that big happening in our time and place in our lifetimes. And many of us will hear about revival and say, we need that. Uh, we need that now. Like we need that in 2021. Like the, the time is ripe for that to happen. Uh, but what's holding us back, I think most of the time, um, isn't the time and energy and prayer that goes into praying for these things. It isn't the reality of spiritual warfare or spiritual pushback which we should anticipate. It isn't even the heartache that comes when we lay our hearts before the Lord and ask for His heart for the lost. Um, those are all real things. Those are all part of the cost. Uh, but I think the number one thing that keeps us from going for this is our fear of disappointment. What if? What if we pray and nothing happens? Uh, what, if, what if we begin to hope for this, to hunger for this, to, to put our time, our attention, our energy, our prayer, our hearts into it, and nothing happens? What if the world just continues on as it's been going? What if we pray for months? What if we pray for years? What if we pray for decades and nothing happens? I, I think that is our fear. I mean, can you imagine the disappointment, the frustration? Are we willing to risk that? Are we willing to risk everything in order to pray for something more than what we see right now? 
That's a question that only you can answer for yourself. Is it worth it? Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the risk? Only you can answer that for yourself. But I will tell you this. More and more of us are slowly coming to the end of ourselves. More and more of us. And I'm not talking about us here at River's Edge. I'm talking about God's church across the Western world. I'm talking about people from Seattle to Scotland and beyond into mainland Europe who, who are all beginning to arrive at this place. Who are all beginning to say, God, either you move in power or, or we're done. Like This is the time for you to take the field, Lord. Uh, all of us across the Western world are, are slowly, one after the next, being stirred by God to dream bigger, uh, to think bigger, to pray bigger in the presence of a God who can do more than we could ask or imagine. So what do, what do we do with that? We have this growing sense across the Western world that our efforts will never be enough. We're saying, we need, we need yours, Lord. Our dreams that we would make for ourselves, it's never going to be enough. God, would you give us your dreams? Our presence as the church in the culture is never going to bring millions of people to faith. But God, your presence will. If you make your presence tangibly felt over our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, millions of people will come to faith in you. So Lord, Lord we, need, we need your presence, we need your dreams. We, we need your will to be done. Would you come now, Lord, and, and teach us to pray? Would you come now, Lord, and give us, give us your dreams, light your fire inside of us for something greater than what we see right now? Lord, would you come and prepare our hearts for what it is that you want to do in the Western world? You have a thought, you have a plan, you have a dream. Lord, may your thoughts become our thoughts. May your dreams become your dreams. Would, would you alert us to what it is that you want to do across the Western world? Millions of people who don't know you. I'm just going to take a second um, as we close here. Um, Nick, you can come back up. We're going to worship soon. But uh, before we jump into worship, I want to just take a moment and just wait on the Lord. And if you're live streaming and you're at home, we'd encourage you to, to just wait on the Lord with us. And uh, we're just going to take a few minutes and, uh, and wait on Him and let Him kind of guide our time of response. Um, if this dream that more and more of us are beginning to catch, if it's from God, then it's, then it's going to spread. God's going to plant those dreams. He's going to stir hearts. He's going to ignite something in us and confirm that this is what he wants to do. And if it's not of him, man, I'm, I've been carrying this. This has been a burden on my heart for a couple of years now, uh, at least a year and a half, maybe two years. And so I just get before the Lord and say, Lord, if this isn't of you, please let it fall away. This is just us and our wishful thinking. Lord, let it fall away. Let's never talk about it again. Let's just go about business as usual. Let's do what's normal. Let's do what's safe. 
But if this is of you, if, if it's you, then light that fire, Lord. Let it spread. So we're just going to take a moment here before we uh, begin worshiping and singing together to just wait on the Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place, Lord. We wait on you now, and we do so with eagerness, uh, and we do so with a sense of freedom, Lord. We, we just want your dreams to catch in our hearts. We want your vision to become our vision. And so, Lord, if any of this is of you, we pray that you would come now and begin speaking and moving and working in our hearts. And if it's not of you, we're content to, to walk away. We're content, sadly, uh, to just do business as usual and, and just keep doing what we've been doing. But as we look out at the culture, Lord, we, we know it won't be enough. We see all the trends. We see where things are heading. It won't be enough unless you come and awaken us again. So we say, come, Holy Spirit. We wait on you now.